0: Along the the tomato plants, are carrots, we were actually going, we were weeding them yesterday and we were picking some because they were growing really close together. Why do you have to weed? Because after all, the other plants need to grow too. Because they're killing the other plants and they're getting in the way and you don't know what is food and what's uh, weed. May
1: some of the weeds also be edible? Can they be eaten, you think? Yep. Some of
2: the flowers can. Yeah, Austin, come tell us which ones, what you found in here that's edible. Okay, so, hang
3: on. Um, I should find a good example. Um.
2: Okay. So that was some, just a little uh, clip into what the days of the camp were like in the garden.
1: Thank you for inviting me to the garden. It was a lot of lot of fun, and the children were wonderful. Um, I want to ask you, Becca. You are an elementary school teacher. Middle school. Middle school. I beg yeah. your pardon.
2: <laughs> That's okay.
1: <laughs> and um, um, and you are able to teach social studies and history and geography and physics and chemistry and everything else all together, perhaps mm-hmm. yep. connecting them together. <laughs> Uh, But why this interest in gardens and getting children to be in the gardens, in the earth, and growing plants and food? Uh, I understood you to say when I was there that your school is wonderfully uh, caring for its children and uh, really is very supportive of the teachers. Mm -hmm. And so when you wanted to do this, there was a lot of support. It's wonderful to hear, and that's why we, of course, support public schools, nothing but public schools for everybody. Uh, So tell me why. I mean one of the
2: things after teaching for three years is that I noticed children were coming to school with a lack of food Um, and I looked around specifically in Vermont at all the land and all the people growing local healthy food and just what thinking of this question, why are so many of our students malnourished and even lacking food? Um, It really made me think about farming and the food. and, And then I started to think even more of, well, what needs to change? And thinking about how I want students to be learning through doing, both learning with their heads and with their hands. And being able to ask critical questions about the world we live in and i think looking at our food system of who who does the work and who owns and bringing in the big corporations and industries that are really influential in governmental policies that i wanted students to be asking and learning these things through um, analyzing their own lives and the food that they have and Also, like the main reason is introducing students to a means of being able to care for their own health and for their bodies, and getting excited about food growing and the connection back to the land, um, and to try to lessen the separation that we have between
1: the food that we eat and our own bodies. So there's a kind of separation between the food they put in their mouths and from where it comes from.
2: Yeah, I, it was so difficult for young kids. I worked with a group of fourth and fifth graders and sixth graders, and then my camp was mostly uh, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth graders. And it was really difficult to list out even the ingredients that our food that is in our food. It was this idea of well, it's bread and cheese and pizza, right? Um, but mm-hmm. even to think about all the different um, processes and all the diff- different People that have labored mm-hmm. to bring the food to our supermarkets in this nicely packed box that looks like an idyllic—it was raised in an idyllic farm with a single farmer, really connected to the land and to the animals—and that's just not the reality.
1: <laughs> I really hope you can expand this kind of work in the school, and I know you have the support for it. Yeah. So maybe we can have a festival of food or something. And that would be wonderful. A few three months from now. That would be wonderful.
2: So uh, let's go now to some of the clips of students talking. Um, We'll play three clips in a row. The first one will be a conversation that I was having with a few middle school students and a high school student. And then we'll hear from two other high schoolers about their experience in the program. So I'm wondering if you all can start out describing the Lettuce Grow food program that we are completing today.
3: Um, I guess is how some people look at it. Mm-hmm. Do you all think
2: people your age, like what's something really important that you think they should know about our food system that we live
3: in? They should probably look more in depth into it. Like there's a ton of documentaries that you can watch that explain it all very very well. So like they could just look into it more and know what they're putting into their body. Mm
4: -hmm. Food Inc is uh, one of those great documentaries that will really expose and unleash the curtain on uh, companies and um, a company in Monsanto that is claiming the soybean and is trying to sue Vermont for um, putting down a law that um, that states that you have to uh, label uh, GMO, which means genetically modified organism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, GMO uh, seeds and products.
2: So, what do you all think should happen in Springfield? We know that not everyone is able to eat this local food, local food right out of the ground that we've been growing. So what do you think should happen to bring this to more people? And
4: I think we should start up more gardens, more community gardens, where people can go in and take their fair share. And be able to give food to the community by making more and more gardens over time. And um, hoping that the government will try to fund it and to be able to make a better economy for ourselves. And then hopefully stretch out over across the world. and able to get food to people who need it. Mm-hmm.
2: How can we make people your age interested in gardening? Say so you get food out of
3: it, because a lot of people are like, "Ooh, that's work, and then they realize, oh wait, I get food. <laughs> so yeah.
2: Anything else you all want to add about what we've been doing and learning?
4: Um we've learned that there's a bunch of companies that are trying to protect themselves from uh people trying to sue them and call them out on things that they know that are wrong, like um, food companies are telling farmers that they can't uh that they have to work for them and they can't talk or they'll end their contract and farmers aren't being paid too much, and they're deliberately feeding these um these animals things that um they know that will be harmful to them and even if you had like even if um a company had over uh, amounts of um intox- like, toxication in their uh food like e coli and stuff like that they can't be shut down because they have these legions of lawyers to protect them and so they're spending their money on
2: Thank you all so much.
0: You're welcome.
2: So, can you uh, introduce yourself and talk about the program that you just completed?
0: Uh, my name is Zoe Evan, and we were part of the um, school camp uh, Let Us Grow Food, and we were planning stuff, and we were talking about where our food grows and where we should give and help our town.
2: What was an activity or conversation that stuck out to you from the past two weeks?
0: We talked about the Mexican farmers and how they were treated and how the U.S. companies treated them. And I thought that was very important, that we should all know about that and how we should help do something for it. Mm -hmm.
2: Why do you think um, it's important for kids to have conversations about where their food comes from?
0: so they know what they're eating and where it is and what's happening to those animals that they're eating.
2: But what happens if you know and we still... Why do you think people still eat things that they know are bad for themselves?
0: The influence and what is in social media nowadays and what they are bribing us to eat and how it shows on the charts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm
2: what do you think um, is like the biggest barrier to people eating healthy
0: not a lot of motivation in the way it looks and how it's perceived on social media that junk food's better or that celebrities are being forced into commercials for junk food and stuff like that
2: yeah that plays a big big part in the young people's minds very
3: So for my English and civics final in ninth grade I did um, getting gardens at Springfield High School to improve the lunch program and by doing we would get gardens and we'd harvest the food and we would do the like use the food for from the gardens for the cafeteria to feed people Um, most likely periodically because it's really hard to feed 400 kids just from a garden so um, but we get integrated somehow into the school and I talked to a lot of people and learned a lot about different schools in Vermont that have done this and yeah. Why do you feel like a
2: type of project like this is important at the high school here?
3: Uh, Because a lot of the food just is shipped from like the government because it's a government-funded school so a lot of the food is just given to us and it's not VERY FRESH OR LOCAL AT ALL, LIKE A LOT OF THIS STUFF IS FROZEN AND IT'S JUST PUT IN AND NOT REALLY, um, IT'S NOT REALLY CARED ABOUT WHERE IT COMES FROM SO MUCH, BUT THEY ARE WORKING ON IT MORE THIS YEAR. Um, KEVIN SULLIVAN, THE FOOD COORDINATOR FOR THE WHOLE DISTRICT, BUT HE WORKS, HE'S um, CENTRALIZED UP AT THE HIGH SCHOOL, HE SAID THAT THEY'RE TRYING TO GET MORE LOCAL FOOD IN THE um, cafeteria. Yeah. To feed the kids healthier, more local food.
2: And you've just been participating in Let Us Grow Food Summer Camp as one of the counselors. And can you talk about something that you've learned during this program?
3: Um, I learned that a lot of the food that I eat has different additives and stuff that may not be good for you and stuff that's grown without the best conditions for animals or workers. Um,
2: the workers part stuck out to you a lot. You want to explain to our listeners what <laughs> what you learned?
3: Well, um, workers a lot are imported from out of country illegally so they can work for lower wage and they can't do much about it because they don't have any rights in America. And that's really problematic because um, these workers are being treated horribly and like they don't matter at all, which is obviously problematic because they're people too and it's kind of um, just like a marker on how much we haven't improved even though a lot of people think we have as a country. We have in a lot of different ways but this is one of the ways is just money is just the most important thing when it should be human lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything else that you think people your age should be learning about and focusing on? I think definitely the way you treat people and where your food comes from is really important. Try and talk to your parents or whomever um, you're living with to try and get them to kind of do research from where they're getting their food and try and get them to maybe change where they're getting it so we can't, we don't support these companies that are treating their workers and the animals that they're getting their um, produce from awfully.
2: Do you think you want to continue to do gardening and trying to supplement your food by growing food?
3: Yeah definitely. I think it's a really good way to eat healthier and I'm personally a vegetarian so um, like fresh food like vegetables and stuff at the grocery store can be expensive which is not helpful. (laughs) So um, I think gardening is a really good way to get food for not as much money as you would at a grocery
2: store. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. So that was just a little taste of some of the ideas and voices from students in Springfield, Vermont, um, who participated in the Let Us Grow Food. It's, it's a play on words. The lettuce was the beginning of our garden. <laughs> um, and you're listening to Indigo Radio. Deepening Understanding, Making Connections, on Brattleboro Community Radio Station 107.7 FM. We're discussing today the importance of engaging each other and in our, in our schools and in our community about the food we eat and where it comes from. I'm Becca, teacher in Springfield, Vermont, and I'm here with Jonaki. And so we're going to actually go to a clip now from AJ Plus about how this big food industry is influencing what students eat at their school lunches connected to a little bit of what Tori was just talking about in that last clip you heard.
5: Greasy pizza, fries, cookies, that's what school lunches are made of, right? Well, not so much anymore. lunches are changing thanks to the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. It was enacted into US law this year. The law requires 97,000 American public schools to provide healthier food. Well, in theory, it's supposed to mean more fruits and veggies, less saturated fats, less salt. Great news, right? Well, the food industry doesn't seem to think so. Companies like Kellogg's and Coca-Cola have spent millions of dollars trying to prevent these changes. And here's the kick up. Food lobbyists were actually involved in crafting the legislation itself. And when you actually read the bill itself, you'll find that it's not really a complete overhaul of school lunch health standards. But still, the big food industry is fighting the changes and turning school cafeterias into a political food fight. The first lady, Michelle Obama, is making kids' health a priority and has championed the new legislation. Lawmakers across the country seemed to be on board. But just as the program was being rolled out this year, Republican lawmakers have been trying to roll it back in. They've pushed to allow certain schools to opt out of making these changes to their cafeteria menus. But why? Do they want kids to be fat? Like Big Oil and Big Pharma, there's Big Food. And one of their biggest consumers, kids. Big Food has a dedicated team of lobbyists and cash to influence Washington leaders. And they concentrate their money on members that serve the U.S. Department of Agriculture who decide the nation's food policy. That translates to millions of dollars in lobbying. So it's not a surprise that Big Food has used its lobbyists to try to shape the guidelines of the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. And it's also targeted the School Nutrition Association, or the SNA, to try to push back The SNA board should have been the program's natural allies, and initially they were. But now they're amongst the most vocal critics, leading a lobbying campaign to allow schools to opt out of following the guidelines. Maybe it's because they're backed by food industry heavyweights like Domino's Pizza and Pepsi. In fact, just about half of the SNA's $10 million budget comes from big food. For big food, childhood obesity is less important than profits. And the ever-revolving door that sums up Washington, D.C. doesn't help. Just last month, a leading former PepsiCo lobbyist named Joel Leftwich was named Chief of Staff of the Senate Agricultural Committee. That's the same Agricultural Committee that does regular overhauls of different nutrition programs, including the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act. And his former employer, Pepsi, has been key in fighting local soda taxation and ensuring junk food remains available at schools. So how is all of this happening? How does this have so much say in our kids' diets? Well, we've got separation of church and state in this country, but corporations and state? Not so much.
2: So that was a clip from AJ Plus about how big food is influencing what students eat in their school lunches. and. Um You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Today, we're discussing the importance of engaging each other about food, where it comes from, and how to grow food. And we're joined by Dr. Runa Ray on the air. Can you hear us, Runa? Yep. Great. So Dr. Runa Ray is a family doctor and public health specialist. And she's joining us today um, to discuss Um, a community garden. So we could jump right in, Runa, and maybe you could describe the context of the Bronx where you started this garden and why a group of doctors decided to start a community garden.
6: Um, So I um, used to practice in the Bronx um, in New York. That's where I went to residency. Uh, And my fellow co-resident and physician, um, Dr. Ernesto Guevara and I, um, we had been practicing there for a few years, and um, we saw that a lot of the um, health and disease issues that we faced in our with our patients were around um, often there were diseases cardiovascular diseases um, like diabetes and high blood pressure um, obesity, and uh you know we were learning and practicing how to uh, you know, counseling patients on um, changing their uh, eating habits and exercising, and also we were learning to uh, prescribe medicine, lots of medicine for these conditions, but uh, we were really um, based in clinics and hospitals, and we didn't really get uh, <clears throat> much of a chance to interact with the community and think about these issues uh, at a population or community level. Um, instead, we were um, treating patients one by one um, So uh, Ernesto My um, my Fellow physician in this program uh, He had a really green thumb And um, He sort of personally Liked to garden I think as therapy I have always been interested in Food and nutrition and I also find like uh, Cooking and uh, Working with food very therapeutic For myself um, We started a uh, small plot in a, um, community garden <clears throat> that was down the street from our clinic, uh, one year, and, um, it was, a it was, like, a, a community garden where a lot of different people could, uh, rent a plot for, like, a pretty small amount of money, and so there we started out, um, doing a very small pilot program, um, where we planted lots of vegetables, um, vegetables you know, including tomatoes and green beans and uh, kale. And um, engaging, we started engaging our patients about it. Uh, you know, just some of it was just in conversation while we were um, discussing health and nutrition um, and exercise with patients. You know, we would mention that, oh, do you know that there's a community garden that's down the street? Well, um, the we worked at a clinic called the Family Health Center. We said, well, the, the Family Health Center has... A, a plot um, down the street. You can go check it out, um, see some of the vegetables growing. We would ask patients if they'd ever, you know, been gardening or if they thought about um, where their vegetables come from. Um, and we also talked about sort of the, the therapeutic nature of just being in a garden. Um, the Bronx, where we worked, <clears throat> is uh, one of the most densely populated places in the country. It's very urban. Um, It's also one of the, I think, the poorest uh, urban county in the country. Um, The environment, the physical environment, is um, very busy. Uh, There's not much greenery um, for people living there on a day-to-day basis. Most people live in apartment buildings that are um, usually around at least six stories or more tall, Um, and so people are really living in, like, the built environment, uh, and it's very hustle and bustle. Um, There's some benefits to living in a city um, from the health perspective. People um, walk a lot more than they do um, in places that rely on cars. They have to go up and down stairs a little bit more. But they don't necessarily see the green and and kind of derive the uh, relaxation um, and stress-relieving properties of being in nature. So we started out uh doing this some we told our colleagues about it and some of our colleagues started referring patients to go to the garden down the street um there was one uh group that uh, was based at our clinic that worked on um worked with patients who were interested in making um lifestyle changes in how they eat and exercise and weight loss and that group started meeting um in the community garden uh and um we see some of our mental health patients uh, started going to the garden just to kind of relax. So we sort of we saw that the, that having a garden um, related to the clinic and to clinical work was uh, you know really beneficial both for the people who worked at the clinic and the patients, um, and kind of gave us a, a neat way to um, engage patients and families and the community around health issues, which was different from. Um, how we traditionally practice medicine, which is, you know, one-on-one, um, one person at a time. <clears throat> even the clinic workers, a few of them, I think, had meetings or they went to lunch in the garden down the street. They had Some of them had been working in the clinic for years and some of them even decades, and they hadn't even known about the little garden that was down the street. Um, so it was nice to build a partnership with that community garden and get to meet some of the people who worked there. I <clears> must <throat> um,
1: say, uh, you know, that... Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Ray and watching and witnessing you and Dr. Guevara doing this work over the last few years, this is Janaki speaking, Uh, Mm -hmm. it's really, really been wonderful and great and one of the connections that we've all tried to make is between teachers and doctors Mm -hmm. and that's been really important you might remember the conference we had some time ago Mm -hmm. because when you talk to patients you're also of course talking to uncles and aunts and everybody else, as you call the community. And mm. I also know that you have a school doctor program in the area. So is there a way in which this can be broadened now under your ages?
6: Um, I mean, I'm personally, I'm not in the Bronx anymore, but um, there's lots of doctors who do practice in the Bronx. Um, there are, like you said, there are. there's school health programs where um, there are doctors and nurses who work in schools, And I think um, starting with, uh, you know, to teach the connection between gardening and the environment and health is a wonderful thing to start teaching um, children and engaging children on um, and young people. Uh, and I think, you know, doing that kind of work from uh, from school-based health programs is a great idea. I think often school-based health programs, like most um you know, traditional clinical medicine is again focused on the you know um, treating the individual patient and treating the disease and not necessarily engaging in the community in prevention. So um, I think it'd be wonderful if some some programs like this started. We, um, when we eventually started a, a bigger community garden that was based on the hospital grounds, um, and we had about we built about six um, raised bed gardens there. And we partnered with uh, five different community organizations, um, and each community organization uh, got a raised bed uh, to, uh, to, you know, to make their own garden. And you know, we you know, asked that they engage with the people that they worked with on issues of health. So, for example, one of our programs that engaged with us was a, um, a program that worked with youth and adolescents who. Um, were overweight and interested in learning about nutrition and exercise um to live healthier lives and so these um these young people came and they they like they helped uh, fill up the garden bed with dirt and they helped plant all the vegetables and fruits and they had a great time we have lots of pictures of them getting you know really dirty and um it was like they were pretty happy to uh learning about you know vegetables planting them in the earth um and, you know, learning about the life cycle and how how plants, um, you know, get into our, uh, our bodies and affect our health. So um, that was one of the five groups that we engaged. And I think, yeah, working with young people is a really great, great thing to do in gardens.
2: That's great. And I think um, what you're saying, Dr. Ray, is so important that I think as a teacher, too, we see ourselves as one-on-one with students or with the class and that only within the classroom, We can really change things. And I think doctors may be the same like that one on one counseling or that one on one, people are coming in once they're already sick. And so I just love, I'm so inspired by you all thinking about how to bring medicine to the community level. So I just wanted to say thank thank you you so much for your work. Thank
1: you very much indeed.
2: And thank you for joining us today on Indigo Radio. We hope to connect again soon
6: it was great to be a part of your show
2: thank you thank you so we're gonna that was dr runa ray a family doctor and public health specialist talking about her work in the bronx with medicine and community gardens and we're gonna go now to a song by manu Chao called seeds of freedom
7: of freedom, time has come. Seeds of freedom, life will overcome. Seeds of freedom, will we be so some? Seeds of freedom, life will overcome. Small seed, big tree, gardens of hope. Everywhere, just to share, gardens of hope.
2: You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, your community radio station. That was Manu Chow, Seeds of Freedom. Today on our show, we're discussing the importance of engaging each um, our communities in the food we eat, where it comes from, and how to grow food. And we're joined right now by Amanda. Can you hear us, Amanda?
8: Yes, okay, I can. Okay,
2: great. So Amanda Jordan Sparks. What's your, I'm sorry, I don't know your last name, <laughs> your new last name, Amanda. We, I only know you as Amanda Jordan. <laughs> it's uh, Amanda Jordan Starks. Starks, okay. <laughs>
1: Congratulations, Amanda.
2: <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> um, Amanda uh, graduated with a master's in social justice from School of International Training here in Brattleboro, and she was a health and safety program associate with the AFAP, the Association of Farm Workers Opportunity Program, and she's now uh, works with Urban Gardens as the farm coordinator. Thanks so much, Amanda, for joining us.
8: No, I'm happy to be here.
2: Um, can you start off by telling? Oh, she's in. You're in San Diego, California, the Urban Garden. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, can you start off describing your work with Urban Gardens and? kind of giving us a context of San Diego as well, why this work is important there.
8: Sure. Um, So I work with an organization called Urban Life, and um, our focus is um, youth. um, And we have uh, an initiative called Urban Life Farms where we turn empty lots um, into thriving urban gardens. And so um, the city of San Diego, a lot of people think about um, SeaWorld and sunshine and tourism and that kind of thing. And um, for folks who live here, it's one of the highest um, costs of living in the country. And in the neighborhoods where we work, there are a lot of empty lots, um, privately owned or otherwise, where, um, you know, they collect trash, they're, um, they're not taken care of. And so, um, the vision that some people in urban life had was to turn them into gardens and then give youth internship opportunities, um, while they learn about how to grow food.
2: Great. And why do you think it's important to engage young people in these conversations around food and particularly in gardening?
8: Um, I think that, well, I think everyone should be engaged in the conversation because we all eat and, um... We're living in a country and in a context and a time when um, we can be very disconnected from the source of our food and, and take things for granted. Um, things like having strawberries or oranges all year round, no matter what part of the country we're in. And um, without thinking about consequences on like the environment or people who are um, working to harvest that food for us, and so, um, young people, I work with with high school students, they're um, they're already questioning a lot of things in the in the world around them, and they're in this position where they don't have complete control over what they're eating because of in um, school lunches, you know, they, they give them they give them whatever they have, and then at home, maybe their parents do grocery shopping. A lot of the students I work with, their parents are, working really hard all day and so they've, um, they rely a lot on fast food um, and the kids do as well so um, when they get a chance to go outside and see how food is growing, what a tomato plant looks like um, they really um, start to appreciate it a lot more and then especially when we talk about the connections of the larger industry and the history of agriculture in this country um, they can see kind of why um, in, in their neighborhoods there's certain food that's um, not really available, not as accessible as in other neighborhoods and just start to ask questions and, um, and just think about the whole, the whole system. And, um, and yeah, and they love being outside after being cooped up inside a classroom all day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Amanda, it's very good to talk with you again. It's a, a real honor here. And I'm so impressed by the work that you're doing. Could you tell us a little bit more? And this word separation and disconnected that you've used is so important. So could mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit more about the way you organize your work, how you do it?
8: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great talking with you as well. Um, I think that um, the the separation that um, young people can feel from their food um, the The remedy for that would be to to reconnect <laughs> and so um the, the practical um, on a practical level that's literally going out into the in our we have two two urban farming sites where they learn everything from how to change the composition of the soil so because we're farming on urban lots they um the soil quality is really poor um there could have been buildings there years back, but mostly they've been empty for a while. Um, and so learning about how to amend the soil, how to um, change the soil so that it can um, need the healthiest base for, for plants. So we talk, about, we talk about how to do that, um, how to grow things from seeds and plant them, harvesting, and then um, where that food goes. So the students take home um, vegetables that they grew each week and, um, so through that process, I think they get reconnected to, reconnected to where their food comes from. And then, um, we always have some sort of, um, learning time as well. So, um, we talk to them about how, how, you know, they find themselves here in 2017. You know, um, most of them are, well, they're all, they're all students of color. They're mostly, um, African American or, um, of Mexican descent. Um, and also Samoan and Laotian. And so um, we encourage them to talk to their families about how their parents or grandparents grew food or um, got their food or how they cooked. And so they kind of can uncover some of the layers of how they arrived at this part of the story and how um, the whole country um, country's history of, of food has evolved up until now, or if that's the right word. I don't think it's the right word, but... <laughs>
1: Can you think of some ideas as to how we can broaden this work across the country? Because clearly it's got to go beyond where we're working and it has mm-hmm. to be also reaching out to white children.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: And so what do we do? What are your ideas of how we can broad- broaden this across the country?
8: Um, I think that um, in the same way every... every every community across the country should be learning about its own history. Um, It could focus on food history of that particular community or state, and I think that there's always a lot of um, relevant information. Like, for instance, where I'm working and where I live, it was the only place in San Diego where people of color could own land. Um, And so, you know, that has had an effect up until now. So I think that um, starting on the local level is really important and helping people understand um, no matter, you know, whatever their background is. Um, you know, there's, there's so much to be said about, um, about white sharecroppers and um, the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, all those kinds of key concepts that they can learn about and see how, how their family um, has been connected to food. And um, I think also it's really important across the country to advocate for farm workers and for farm worker rights. Um, there are farm workers in every single state, um, every single state, and um, their work is generally on purpose, um, very seasonal, and so it's, it's a really, really difficult time compared to other times um, for farm workers to, to unionize and organize. They're not protected by the same labor rights, um... Rules. They um, are mostly undocumented, and um, so um, they're very afraid to to do a lot to kind of um, you know the the things we hear about for, from like Cesar Chavez and and that movement. You know, there were people who were undocumented who who got deported and who were under that threat, but people were really well organized. People wanted um, the their whole families were here with them. And so they were all fighting together. And now because it's mostly single undocumented men, um, doing temporary farm work, traveling, you know, one, one part of the year they're in Arizona, another part of the year they're in Washington state. Um, becomes really difficult to, to organize. Um, yet <laughs> we demand really low prices for our food and we, um, can be receiving food from Chile in the, in the winter time, and we don't have to think about um, where it comes from. And there are, there are movements, like for instance in Florida, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. United Farm Workers are, are still doing some work here in California. There's um, some unions in Washington. So on a state level, there are people who are advocating for farm workers. And Um, here in Vermont,
2: we have an organization called Migrant Justice that is doing a lot of really great work around the dairy farmer industry here. Mm -hmm. Um, A big Mm -hmm. campaign against Ben and Jerry's right now, actually, that they're trying to bring nationwide. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, Uh That's great. I just have to say, Amanda, knowing you for so long, um, I'm so inspired by your thoughtfulness and the way you do work. And I love that you're connecting history. Um, It's funny, a lot of the students ask me, but you're a history teacher, why are you doing stuff with farming, right? And so (laughs) I think making those connections that the history of the land is very much connected to who's able to grow food on the land and how we can take um, land back to people who it belongs to. Um, And I just wanna say that your program also inspires the work that I'm doing here in Vermont. So thank you so thank much you. for joining thank us you. on the radio today.
8: Yes, thank you for having me. <laughs>
2: We'd love I to have care. you join us another time <laughs> as well. Sure, <laughs> so
8: definitely. I'd love to come back out to Vermont and see you. Sure. Please.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Amanda. Thank so you. So you're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM. Brattleboro's community radio station. We're going to go to a quick song break, Climbing Poetry, the song called Love Will Triumph, featuring Rising Appalachia and Toshi Reagan.
4: Ain't no justice because the government got bought for a fee and the people believe what they see on TV, the drivers I see. Passed out in they seats, operating war machines while they drunk on the scene. Numbing out and impaired from the fear and the greed. They abduct us for nothing, walking down our own streets. The pook protecting the powers that be. Our bodies portray what's profiled on their screens. Stakeholders control us, so freedom of speech. Sold off our rights in the night after they privatized peace. Teach violence through silence that the status quo keeps. Cover gold on a stick, dangling out of our reach. But poison in the sky so my people can't breathe I know we will rise, why must we first bleed? We gon' heal, we gon' grow. what they sow, they shall reap We'll break every wall till our people are free Be the change
7: that you wanna see Cause love will triumph over that terror and greed A unified power Convirtiera la violencia en escalera Que baja como ganado, que ahora está en tercera Pero no, le nacimos a una fiera Que nos traga como seamos, que ama el dinero y no considera la frontera Exagera el dolor mientras sube su bandera Mientras sube su bandera Si yo fuera alquimista, Convirtiera al egoísta en estatua de oro para que quede como toro en la plaza de los vidos
5: Today's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books, located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street. Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio, 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's community radio station. If you missed part of the show, look for us on Facebook at Indigo Radio. We link all the we post all the links to our shows there, and you can also find us on podcast, the RSS feed. We've been discussing today the importance of conversations about the food we eat, where it comes from, and how to learn reconnect back to the land, how to grow our own food. And so, Janaki, I'm interested to hear from you a little bit more about why you think people are so disconnected from the food that we eat and what can be done about that.
1: Well, that's a question indeed and a very serious question, which I think all our listeners also must have answers about as well so that it's not just we here behind the mic but all of us to think about and figure this out and I hope therefore that some of the study groups that you all have organized are also welcome to the community and uh, that people should pay attention to when those happen I think first of all you know, just uh, thinking about it all the people who've talked today have used the words like separation and disconnection and alienation, so we're we're separated from what? We're separated from each other. Uh, There is a separation now which is very systematic and deliberate between white and color. Why should that be? Uh, Why are we separated from the food we eat that we think it comes from milk comes from bottles and vegetables come from plastic bags? So that reconnection is very hard to do because The system under which we live itself calls and insists, says, you must be separated. Because if we don't uh, get separated in that way, how can the people who own the the land, who own all kinds of things that make them make profit, make a lot of money, uh, how can they get their money if they don't separate the tomatoes being picked from there being sold. Because we have to buy deer and sell, and buy cheap and sell deer. So we buy things as cheaply as possible if you are a big owner, and sell things at a much higher price, and we all know that. If you go to the local supermarkets, the prices just shift and change, and uh, it's so expensive to be able to just get basic food on the table, let alone good food on the table. So we tend then to become not motivated, as one of the children said, and get the cheapest food, which is fried foods and the worst uh, parts of the meat and so on, the cheapest foods. However, um, in your uh, group, Becca, you read the uh, story, Thomasina, from that excellent book Rethinking Globalization. Mm-hmm. So just recall what the children found out about that. Mm-hmm
2: yeah in the it's called Tomasito's Tour, and it's a a guide to America's food system, so it's tracing the origins of a tomato that you might find in a supermarket, how you know they were really um, the it's really stuck out to the students that while the seed started in Mexico, it's a us based corporation that now controls that seed. so just that very idea that you can own life was really shocking to them um, and then all the different people that are doing work to bring that you don't it's not it's the farm workers but it's also the truck drivers it's also the people who are packaging and the people who are affected um, are not just the people who grow the food it's also um, where some of the toxic waste from the management manufacturing plants are located hazardous waste landfills are usually in poor neighborhoods um so those people are being impacted by our industrial food system and the students were asked to think about who benefits from this and who is harmed from this and i know a lot of them for a lot of them um thinking about the people who are working and growing our food was a really important piece to um, understanding why people don't have healthy, affordable food.
1: And it was incredible to me how quickly they got the point because they know from their own eyes what they have observed themselves that this is the case. Mm-hmm. So they were able to get the idea of who benefits very, very quickly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the seeds, as you started, they're predator seeds, many of them. That is, the seeds cannot grow into, grow into plants, but the seeds from those plants can't be planted again. Mm-hmm. So the farmers have to buy more seeds from the company, in this case, Cargill, Monsanto, whoever. Right. And I had to go from village to village to get native seeds. And as you know, people in India and places are committing suicide because they cannot afford to buy seeds again and again.
2: Right, and there's so, their livelihood of exactly 80% of the world is
1: peasants on, exactly. o- working on small plots of land and... Um, So the point is, you know, we are disconnected in order to make profit for the few. That's the basic sentence, isn't it? mm -hmm. So we're disconnected from anything, from food, clothing, and shelter that we all use. So how do we get to the other place? What in the world that we wish to create where we're not disconnected?
2: Yeah, I think back to what Dr. Ray was saying, um, it's seeing it beyond the individual level. A lot of times it's the idea, the conversation is around individual choices that people make. And I think if we see it on a community level and even larger than that, making connections.
1: But there is a danger because the word itself, community and democracy, are are used by the few at the top to fool us into thinking that it exists. So we have to really look at our own lives, our own experience, and see how separated we are Mm -hmm. and say, no, we will not be separated from what we need. Mm -hmm. So let's do something about this.
2: Yeah, and that's what we're continuing to do. Um, On the radio show, in schools, in our conversations with other people, I just wanted to let the listeners know that next week on Indigo Radio... We will hear from Anna Anna Malani, who just visited um, the Maricopa County Jail, one of the six biggest jails in the country in Phoenix, Arizona, notorious for the long reign of Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Um, And she'll be sharing her stories from the prison, plus an interview with Dr. Charles Malani, who's been working in the jail for the past nine years as a general practitioner. And so we just want to thank you so much for joining Indigo Radio. Find us on Facebook, podcast, and Instagram. And thank you so much, Nina, for running the board flawlessly for her first time independently. So we hope that everyone has a great day and join us next week.